Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a bright autumn day here in the capital is Trevor Lee. Trevor is the Managing Director of Genric Commercial, a UK EMEA and Global Commercial Support Recruitment Agency based in Walton-on-Thames. Trevor, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, you're more than welcome. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us, Trevor. Um, normally, at this point in the show, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we begin with that because it's been such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life, I think it's fair to say. But how has it affected you and your operations over the last few months? Yeah, I mean, it's very much the, you know, topic of discussion, the damn dreaded uh, coronavirus. I mean, you know, it certainly, it definitely has it had a, an impact in our business. I mean, obviously, I think lockdown uh, started, I think, officially around March the 23rd, I seem to remember. So it was, we kind of had to make provisions that everyone was obviously working from home. And certainly from a business perspective, the levels that we found were still, relatively good. Um, you know, the business has been formed over a good number of years, so our client base is quite broad. But I, I would say probably sort of second, third week of April, it, you know, the, the level of business coming through really diminished. Um, and, you know, we were seeing an impact in pretty much every industry because I think so many companies were shocked, um, you know, and business was going, well, what do we do here? Where is the market going to go? Is it going to continue to uh, you know, get worse? Is it going to slightly get better? How do we navigate through that? So there was a bit of a kind of an impact that we found that most businesses all of a sudden turned around and said, look, we were recruiting two weeks ago. We probably will need to recruit, but we're not going to make that decision now. We're just going to see where the market goes. And I, I would say kind of sort of around sort of April, May, um, towards the, you know, sort of first couple of weeks of June, it was very quiet. And, and just as a rough guesstimate, we probably lost around 75, 80% of our business level. So we had to kind of, you know, uh, navigate through that and, and decide, okay, well, where do we put our efforts and energies next? But it certainly did impact us in a, in a negative rather than a positive way initially. And what do you think the long-term effects of the pandemic on your industry are likely to be? Well, I mean, we we were due. I mean, no one that could, no one could have predicted COVID coming. But I mean, I think the last recession was in two thousand and eight, and typically recessions tend to happen every twelve years. So even before COVID did rear its ugly head, I kind of knew there was probably something on the horizon, whether it was COVID that no one knew about or Brexit. Um, I think, look, COVID, I think, is going to change everything. Um, I don't know of any company which in some way, shape or form hasn't been impacted. There are very small pockets of business that have done exceedingly well. You know, you consider, you know, sort of online buying, you know, places like Amazon, which obviously their, you know, revenue has increased um, a hell of a lot since obviously COVID really came into play. 
But uh, most companies are having to change many, many different uh, aspects, whether that's, you know, allowing people a, a full agile remote from work uh, home basis. Um, you know, but the one thing I'm finding is even though we've kind of been through this over the last six months, companies are quite cautious, but equally there has been a lot of companies that have gone through a process of having to reduce their headcount. Because I think the one thing that I am seeing across all businesses now is that companies have kind of looked at their staffing levels and said, right, do we actually need these people? Um, because our revenues aren't as much as what they normally are. So we need to make sure that the headcount um, you know, reflects that. So it obviously has impacted a lot of individuals on a negative way. Many people have lost their jobs. And I think obviously with furlough ending, you know, uh, imminently at uh, the end of October, I think that will also play a part in adding to the unemployment levels. And I think recruitment is always about confidence. If people are confident mm-hmm. that the market is progressing forward, then there's going to be opportunity. And people are also comfortable to move a permanent role into another permanent role. But when the confidence is not there, People lock down. They stop spending money. They think, well, you know what? I may, I'm in a role. I may not be the happiest in this role, but I'm in a role and I'm going to stick with it rather than take the risk of moving into something that I don't know where the company's going and is it going to be the last in, first out type mentality. So mm. we're having to, I suppose, uh, navigate through lots of different challenges and that's from interviewing over Zoom and Microsoft Teams to uh, the understanding that most people are now looking for roles that will involve at least an element of agile working. It's almost like a given now that you know candidates expect that to be with the roles that they're ultimately applying for. Um, so we're seeing challenges in every way, but I mean, we're navigating it comfortably well, but it's, mm. it's certainly, if we look at business levels, it's, it's nowhere near as what it was, you know, this time last year. I think, you know, my honest opinion is if you can come out the end of the year with 50% revenues, um, uh, you know, of, of what you did this time last year, you've done exceedingly, exceedingly well in a very challenging market. Mm. And obviously you mentioned home working. It is a challenge, isn't it? Sort of getting to grips with having to lead remotely and lead from a distance, at least yeah. in the first instance. And for a lot of businesses, they've handled the transition fairly well. But also when it comes to what will become of our working practices as a result of all of this, there are arguments on both sides, very good arguments as well, for people being able to work from home on a more personal basis more regularly, whereas others maybe value their office environment that a little bit more as a result of this. Um, can you see the office as it was pre-pandemic, that conventional work environment ret- ever returning in vogue, or do you think it is going to be more towards remote working or even a hybrid of the two? Do you know what? It, it's a really good question, and I suppose it's you know predicting the future. I mean, I think it will be a hybrid of the two. I mean, most companies uh, that you know we work with now you know, certainly if they're in central London or large sort of, you know, towns and cities, there's not uh, an immediate plan for them to return full-time in the business. The ones that I have seen, they've kind of, you know, split people split people into sort of team A and team B. So, you know, people from team A will go in on a 
Monday and Tuesday and work from home Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Team B will work from home, you know, sort of, you know, um, Wednesday, Thursday and going on, you know, on a Friday or Monday and Tuesday type of thing. So that tends to be working quite well at the moment. Personally, I think a full remote working long-term won't work. And I think companies need to factor in a couple of things. One is if you've got someone working fully remotely, um, you know, two things, it will it obviously will have an impact on a lot of things. But one is through time, if it works well for the company, then the company might turn around and say, well, hang on a minute. You know, we've got an individual that hypothetically we're paying 50000 a year. We, and they're working full-time from home. Why can't we get someone to be based in, you know, Eastern Europe where we'll pay them half the salary mm. and ultimately, you know, we'll still get the same level of work? Mm. So, you know, I think employees have to factor in is that they go down this route of, you know, digging their heels and saying they want a full remote working. It will work in some instances, but I don't think it work, will work for everyone because I think actually long term, it will create a bigger amount of unemployment in this country and possibly create, you know, more opportunity for people to work remotely anywhere in the world, which will bring costs and salaries down. Secondly, I think it's so important, and this is one of the things of why we returned to the office um, on the mid-June, you need people around you. Unless you're a, one of these kind of very rare individuals where you are a lone wolf, it's really important that you have that, um, that connection with others. You know, because, you know, every day, someone in the office, I'll just go, oh, you know, can I just ask you a quick question? You can't do that when you're at home. You can't mm. sort of plan a, you know, a Zoom call, you know, because things just pop up infrequently. And I think, again, you need that, you know, connection. You need that, you know, that touch, that feel of working with others. And that's really, really important because, again, if you are completely working five days a week from home, I don't care what you say. I think it's not the same as working in the office. It's not the same as, you know, telling a joke and everyone laughing or how was your weekend? You you don't get that when you're working remotely. Sure, you might, you know, not have to traveling to work and that might save you costs and things like that. But then because that connection with your, you know, your fellow colleagues and your employer isn't as strong as what it would be if you're in the office, then when someone comes along and perhaps offers you, you know, another role, paying more money, um, and it's still working, full, you know, five days a week from home, then you've, you, your loyalty to that company and the colleagues that you work with aren't going to be there or at certainly as strong as it has been. And again, I think the longevity of, um, you know, and tenure of employees and how long they spend with companies could through time reduce because people feel that they're not part of. And I think the balance of the two, working from home a couple of days a week, absolutely great, no problems. But equally, I think there needs to be that element of feeling part of a community. Because I think at the moment, it's still very new for people. But I think a lot of people are getting used to it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I actually think long term, it's not the right way to go. And that's why certainly at General Commercial, we have a balance of, some people work from home a couple of days a week and, you know, they're, they're, and they'll come into the office the other three days a week. Mm. And that's working quite nicely for us. But I appreciate every company is different. 
And there certainly is a mental health argument as well for keeping the office intact because that social isolation element of the lockdown is being very effectively combated by the return to the office. And where there there may well be benefits for the work-life balance to working from home, there are also mental health benefits on the other hand as well. So it is um, a very, very delicate uh, balance that has to be struck. And there is a very valid argument. Hmm. Absolutely. And if you're a manager or a leader or you're, you know, and you're trying to motivate others and, you know, sort of lead others through sort of challenging times, sometimes someone will come into our office and I'll know, they don't need to say anything to me, but I'll know something's not quite right. And then you will ultimately have a conversation and say, look, are you okay? Is everything okay? You know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, things like that do help. You won't see that if they're working remotely unless they kind of flag it with you and say, look, I'm feeling quite down today. Can we have a conversation? And some people will be very happy to embrace that side of things, but a lot of people won't. And it is a, it's certainly a, it's more of a challenge to you know lead people fully remotely. You need, and that's why I think you need that balance of both. And certainly from a mental health perspective, absolutely, because if you if you're not seeing people on a day to day basis, how do you know what their mental uh, well-being is like. It's very, very difficult unless you're speaking to that individual, you know, every couple of hours and checking in. And not everyone has the time to do that in their work. Exactly right. And just going back to, of course, what was mentioned earlier on, um, you have noticed, of course, that there is a lot of hesitancy from businesses to really do a great deal at the minute. And we're almost in a kind of form of stasis. There's not a lot of recruitment going on. There's not an awful amount of spending. They're just keeping funds aside just to try and see what happens, make sure they're ready for any eventuality. And even when, hopefully, maybe one or two years from now, when COVID-19 is no longer an issue, just because of the prolonged anxiety and the sort of lingering cloud over consumer confidence that will come as a result of this. It could take a while for us to get out of that sort of sense of stasis and kind of get things moving again. So there is also that to consider, even when we do get rid of COVID, that could be sort of a little bit of a lingering hangover for some time. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's what do they say? It's like, you know, if you do something for 30 days, it becomes a habit. I mean, this this COVID has obviously been in place for a good sort of seven months now, and it's really changed, you know, people's mentalities, uh, their lifestyles, what's actually happening. The, the world is very different to what we once knew it. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, change is good. But I think when change is forced upon you, and we've obviously, you know, we're living in, you know, uh, unprecedented times, and I know many people say that now, but we haven't seen anything like this since 1918, the Spanish flu. So, you know, I think, you know, I've always said when I, you know, when COVID really started rearing its ugly head in March, that I think you will see, unfortunately, more uh, negative impact to people on the association with uh, COVID rather than COVID itself. Um, you know, even now, you know, um, I'm, I'm certainly seeing from a candidate perspective a lot more frustration with people. People are more angry. People are more agitated. And I think it's because, you know, everything is quite sterile in the world. And the world is a very... You know, it's it's a bit topsy-turvy at the moment and there's a lot of anger. And I think, you know, that's going to take a good period of time to get back to a sense of harmony in the world. And that's not just specific to COVID. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that are, you know, have been negatively impacted by COVID and what it means to them from an employment perspective, from a, you know, working from home perspective, from 
traveling, to seeing family, friends, etc. And I think, you know, there's, there's, I still think there's some quite tough times ahead. And I, I, you know, from what I can gather, I think if you can get to the end of this year unscathed, then you've done very, very well. Um, I generally think we're not going to see a real impact on, on markets and economies and a slightly better feel good factor, if you like, until quarter two of 2020. Um, so, I mean, as I said, you know, we just don't know. It all depends. But, um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's lots of changes. And I think, you know, there, there's certainly more negative than positive because of the impact that COVID has had ac- uh, uh, across many factors. And considering that you are, of course, an expert on the recruitment side of things, um, there are a lot of young people out there at the moment that are probably looking at the impact COVID has had on the economy and are very downhearted about that and the effect it's going to have on their employment prospects. So as a leader in business, what is your message to those young people, those aspiring leaders and entrepreneurs to really get them to pick up their heads and get on the road to success? Sure. Well, the fact that you called me an expert and you've already made my day, so I'll take that. Um, but um, yeah, I think obviously the one thing that recruitment will impact is is you know uh, individuals that are what I consider sort of salary banding between sort of the you know sixteen to sort of thirty thousand type salaries, and that ultimately will fall under you know uh, individuals with limited opportunity and you know, the youth of today. It's very, very tough for them, um, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, because it, when, you know, companies are recruiting, they will, you know, nine times out of 10 will be looking for people with experience. And that's where, you know, individuals may not have that. You know, if I was going to give people a tip on that, I mean, you know, looking for, you know, a full-time job is a full-time job in itself, but they also have to be flexible uh, you know, and it's the sort of thing that, you know, whilst it's not an ideal, but, you know, it, it could well be if they're struggling to go down the route of finding opportunity in normal market conditions, then, you know, go old school. And when I say old school, I would say contact, uh, find out who the MD or the CEO of the company is and write a heartfelt letter with a copy of the CV send it recorded delivery uh, to, you know, some senior individuals in the business and say, look, I'm hardworking, I'm punctual, I'm reliable. I just need someone to give me an opportunity. You know, let me work with for you for a week, unpaid if you like. Um, and, you know, I'll prove to you that I can be an asset for your company. So, you know, yes, you can go onto various job boards and you've got to apply, but you've, you've got to be very, very proactive because the one thing that we're seeing as at this point in time is that when we advertise a role, we're seeing four or five times as many applications come through. So the competition is fierce. So you've got to do something to segregate yourself um, so that you will see a greater level of opportunity, you know, and often the answers are right in front of you. So, you know, if you know your next door neighbor, you know, knock on their door and say hi and say, look, I'm looking for work. I don't suppose, you know, you know anyone looking for someone I don't mind doing X, Y, and Z. So you've got to be really, really proactive because if you go down the usual traditional route, you fire your CV off, you'll be one of hundreds. And you've got to do something to really stand out from the crowd. And someone will look at that and go, you know what? That's a really nice thing to do. I like your style. Do you know what? I'm going to give you an opportunity. And once you get that opportunity, you've got to work really, really hard to prove to that employer 
that you're the best thing since sliced bread and you're worth keeping for the long term. So flexibility, thinking outside the box, doing something literally every hour of every day. And if you do that, even if you've got limited experience, you will see opportunity. And just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, Trevor, just because I'm conscious that our time is starting to draw to a close, um, we know over the course of the uh, the next um, year or so that the new normal is going to be here to stay for at least six months of it. Um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's announcement two weeks ago suggested that this could be in place until at least the spring, maybe longer. But as we're continuing to get to grips with that, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve as a business yourselves? And indeed, when we get to sort of the point where there is hopefully a working vaccine and we can leave COVID-19 behind. What are you expecting to be coming on the horizon? Yeah, well, it well it will take some time. I mean, you know, certainly from a business perspective and, you know, I run a team and I sort of say to individuals that the important thing is, is that you need to make sure your, you know, your relationships are as trusted and as honest as they possibly can be. Um, and, uh, you know, if there is an opportunity, you're not going to see it, but once there is, you will see it. So there's certain things you can control, uh, and there's certain things that you can't control. I think the important thing is, you know, that the businesses, uh, you know, and candidates that we work with, if there is opportunity, we will work with them. So I think for me is if we can get to the end of the year, seeing a reasonable amount of profit, I will be very, very happy in a very, very challenging year. Long term, I think when the market does come back, you certainly will see uh, a wealth of opportunity. And I think if you've kind of survived the storm, if you like, and you come out the other end, I think there will be an abundance of riches because I think, you know, any businesses that are struggling at this point, but just keeping their head above water, you're doing well. Uh, you know, I know a lot of businesses that have gone under, that have suffered. I mean, thankfully, we're, we're, you know, we're weathering the storm quite well. But when the market and the confidence does come back, and I think that will be sort of quarter two and beyond next year, you will be in a very strong position to, you know, um, I suppose, reap the rewards. So it's a case of be sensible, but work super hard and just make sure that you leave a really positive relationship with everyone that you connect with because you don't know what opportunity that could present itself, you know, within time, whether that's, you know, a week, a month or a year type of thing. So I think, you know, we're certainly very proud of the service that we offer. Um, and, you know, when clients do need us, um, we're confident they will comfortably work with us when that needs arises. And we can't ask for any more than that. You can't force people to recruit. But, you know, thankfully, you know, um, the service that we, we offer, you know, clients resonate to and, you know, we just do our best and we're very open and transparent with it. So I think, you know, next six months will be probably a tough gig. Um, but then beyond that, I think we'll, the green shoots will start to appear. The confidence will be there. And actually, I think that once we get over this COVID hurdle and it becomes part of the norm and people are used to it and perhaps, the, you know, there's a cure out there, then we can all really start pushing forward and the confidence will actually come back quite quickly mm. and the world will get back to the kind of the, 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 the way we all want it to be, you know, you know, and, and I think once that happens, I think that it will be a, it will be a good time. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful it will be anyway. So mm. I'm, I'm not having to, uh, you know, sell any of my body parts on uh, eBay just yet, but you know, give it time. <laughs> you never know. 
Well, let's certainly hope it doesn't come to that for sure. Um, I have to say, Trevor, um, it's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto our programme today. And um, I, honestly, it's such a shame we don't have more time because we could discuss this long into the evening. I'm absolutely sure of that. Um, I will certainly be keeping a close eye on um, industry myself over the course of the next year just to see how um, this is uh, borne out. And I think it would be wonderful, actually, to catch up at some point in the next year or so and have you back on our programme just to see how things really are coming along and we can just assess at that point what has gone on in the time between our discussions absolutely i'll be more than delighted i'm here whenever you need me i would certainly welcome that trevor thank you ever so much again for taking the time to join us on the program today it's been wonderful having you and do take care and do stay safe with everything that's still going on as well perfect thank you so much for your time I'd also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners tuning in. Please do continue to be sensible with restrictions, look after yourselves, be considerate of others. It makes a real, real difference during this time towards saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure to welcome Trevor Lee onto the programme today, Managing Director of Generic Commercial. Next up on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett himself enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, serving as MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, as well as holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during during his premiership. He has been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. And that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And 
in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome.
Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well in scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of Thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.